Well, again, welcome to Harvest. My name is Pastor Micah. Super glad that you're here worshiping with us today. And uh, man, I am so excited to get into this new series. Um, been studying a lot this week, and uh, just a, a great, great book that we're going to be look, looking at over the next five weeks uh, in the book of Jonah. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab that. And uh, if you don't know where Jonah's at, it's one of the smaller books towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, so if you're having problems finding Matthew, the first one in the New Testament, just go backwards a couple pages, all right? Um, and, uh, but this book is, is really a phenomenal work, um, not just of biblical truth, but of literary genre and work as, as it was just masterfully written and it's just really, really rich. Um, and we're going to be talking, though, as we walk through this book of the Bible, um, about God's infuriating grace. I know that might sound a little provocative, but, um, but I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we, we love to think about God's grace in the warm and fuzzy side of things, right? Like it's, it's it, I love God's grace and it, it helps me and it showers me and, and there's lots of things that are fantastic about it, but if we get really um, serious about examining how we interact with God's grace, not only in our life, but maybe even in the lives of others around us, uh, I think we would have to confess that sometimes um, we're not as keen on it as other times. And sometimes we take it for granted, and sometimes uh, we neglect it altogether. And um, so we're going to look at that in the life of Jonah over the next five weeks. So, Bibles, Jonah chapter 1, and that's where we're going to start today. When I was um, growing up, uh, some of you have heard my story, and you know that I got saved at a young age, but there was a, a, a large season there where I was kind of away from the Lord and, and wasn't really following Christ. And, um, but during that season, my parents, when I was a teenager, they switched churches uh, at one point in time, started going to this another church. And so new church means new youth group, right? And so I, I really, again, I wasn't really interested in Christ at this point in my life, and so I wasn't really interested in church, but I was interested in youth group because... At youth group, there were girls. That's right, exactly. Um, just like every good teenage boy, right? So, um, so I wanted to go for that, and so I started going to this new youth group. And, and you know, it's kind of hard when you first walk in, and everybody else kind of knows each other, and they kind of have a history together. And, and there's a, you know, you guys have been new places before, right? So, so you kind of walk in, and you're just kind of nervous. But there was this one girl. Um, we'll call her Rachel. And so she comes up and she starts, you know, kind of interacting with me and just being really warm and kind and welcoming and just really kind of befriended me and kind of took me and made it a whole lot easier. And so, you know, it was great. And, and we kind of started hitting it off. And I'm like, you know, she's, she, she kind of, I think she kind of got a thing for me. And so this is, we're doing, we're building this little relationship and it's going great for a couple of weeks until Matt showed up. Matt was the next new kid to come to youth group. And she was equally kind and welcoming and warm to him, um, even though he was definitely not as cool as I was, as I'm sure you are, can imagine. Um, but but that's, just, that's just who she was, right? Like she was just that type of person. She welcomed everyone and she was just warm and kind and, and she was nice to others. And, and it made you feel good until that warm, kind welcome got directed away from you towards somebody else, right? Have you been there? And, um, and so sometimes I think we get like that with the Lord. He loves us. He's warm to us. He's welcoming to us. He's kind to us. He's all these great things. And he never stops being those things to us. Uh, but sometimes we can get into the mindset of thinking that, he's, that he's, he interacts with us in this way because of us. Because I'm so great and I've come such a long way. And, and, you know, God loves me because it's me, Right? 
And then we start seeing him wanting to love and extend grace to others that we think are less qualified than we are for that same love and grace, and we get a little prickly about that. And um, that's what happens to Jonah in this story. And so today I want to talk about what happens when we start to resent God's grace. Resenting God's grace. In those moments when we do that, we have to check our hearts and figure out why am I feeling this way and why do I feel like I deserve it more than maybe they deserve it. And um, today we're going to look at this. If I resent God's grace, my connection to it will fade away. If I start to resent God's grace, and I know some of you are going to like resent God's grace. Like, I don't do that, Micah. Okay, well, just hold on. Let's just see what God's word has to say to us today and then make that assessment, okay? Um, but if we start to resent God's grace, it will, we will start, our connection to it, our, our connection to the grace of God in our lives will start to fade. It will start to diminish. We will lose what is meant to be full. So with that in mind, look at verse 1. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 starts off like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, all right, let's pause there. So let's just kind of get some background here. Anytime we start a new book of the Bible, it's always important to know who's talking and who they're talking to and what's going on. So it starts off with this guy named Jonah of Amittai, which um, we're going to find out from another part in the Bible that he's a prophet of God. And so the only other place in the entire Bible where this guy is mentioned is actually in 2 Kings 14, verse 25, which says this, uh, he, God, restored the border of Israel from Label Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hepper. And so here we find out that Jonah is a legitimate prophet. And here's kind of what's going on in this story in 2 Kings, kind of give you a background to Jonah, okay? So during this time period of the, of the Hebrew people, this is when, what we call the, the divided kingdom period. Okay, there was a point where um, Israel kind of had some infighting and they kind of got on each other's case about some stuff and they split into two different kingdoms. So you had the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. You had the northern kingdom, which was called Israel. Okay, and so in the northern kingdom, Israel, that's where Jonah was at. He was a prophet in that area. And during, their, during this point in his life, the Syrians, another people group, another country, had come and kind of invaded part of Israel, kind of captured part of their land, and had kind of conquered some of them. And, and so it wasn't going super great, all right? It wasn't a great time for them. And God rose Jonah up to prophesy that Israel would, re, would rebel, basically, against Syria and push them out and regain all this land that they had lost. And after Jonah prophesied that, it actually happened. Always a good thing for a prophet, right? That's always the, the test of a true prophet in the Old Testament is that what they say from the Lord comes true. And so it comes true, and they're able to push the Syrians out, and actually they're even able to capture some extra land that, along, uh, that used to belong to Syria and this whole thing. And, and so that's kind of the backdrop for who Jonah was. So he was definitely a prophet of Yahweh, a legitimate prophet. And so here in this book it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That little phrase there, the word of the Lord came, is the phrase that introduces almost every prophet in the Old Testament, okay? It, is, it recurs over a hundred plus times in the Bible where God comes to deliver a message directly to a person to then deliver to the rest of the nation. And what we see over and over again with the prophets is that when God speaks, we better obey. Anybody have that lesson in their life yet? right? When God speaks, we better obey. And I've given you this definition for obedience 
many times before. I'm going to keep giving it to you. We need this. This isn't just a, a definition to teach your kids for parenting. This is a definition that we need to learn in our own hearts with the Lord. Obedience is this, doing what I'm told to do when I'm told to do it with the right heart attitude. Doing what I'm told to do when I'm told to do it with the right heart attitude. That first part is usually what we focus on when we think about obedience, isn't it? Doing what I'm told to do. Yeah, I'm with the, I did it. I did it. What? Okay. All right. Um, how about the when I'm told to do it, right? Around our house, we, we say, uh, obey right away. All right. First time. I shouldn't have to tell you twice. But then the last one really gets us as adults sometimes, doesn't it? With the right heart attitude. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah and, and sometimes I think we can, we can read stuff like that. And we can get stuck on this like, yeah, I know, I'll, I'm going to obey God. I'm just waiting for him to tell me. I'm just waiting for a word from the Lord. Like, I'm just, I'm praying. I'm just waiting for him to tell me what to do. We have a word from the Lord. Every one of us. Show me the word from the Lord. Hold them up. Come on. Let me see your Bibles. This is the word of the Lord in your life. I'm not saying God doesn't ever speak directly to us. He does sometimes, but that is not the primary way that God communicates into our lives. It's through this book right here. We all have a word from the Lord that we need to be obeying just as he expected Jonah to do. So, let's see how Jonah does. Go to verse 2. Arise, this is God speaking now. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Those first couple words, arise and go, means move and move now, all right? Like in the Hebrew, there's an urgency to that word arise. It's like get up and go, all right? Uh, in our culture today, we might say like stat. We watch a lot of medical dramas at our house. So stat or, or pronto or like anybody remember the old Looney Tunes, right? Arriba, arriba, andale, andale, like go, like get moving. That's, that's what God is saying here. He says get up and, and go. That was for my Spanish friends. I know I, I probably didn't say it right, but okay. So there's, he says, go to the city called Nineveh. Nineveh was a famous Syrian city. It was a big city. It was a government center. It was a, med, it was a, a military center for them. It was a big, big deal. In fact, it calls it right here the great city, right? Which meant that it was large and, and powerful, and it was kind of a trophy city. It was a great city, but it wasn't as great as our God. Because it says here that its evil had come up before him. What that means is that God had been in his patience, in his mercy, allowing them to make the choice to rebel and to ignore God over and over and over and over. And he was being patient, and he was waiting for them to repent, and he was waiting for them to make it right, and he was waiting for them to turn back, and they wouldn't do it. And so now, their disobedience, their rebellion had filled up the wrath of his cup, and he was ready to pour it out upon them. And he's sending Jonah to warn them of what's coming. So then verse 3, look at what happens. But Jonah, bad play. You're going to see those two words over and over in this book, but Jonah. That's a bad play, guys. When God says do something, there is no but. All right, just go. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go 
with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So he did arise. He rose quickly, but not to go where God told him to go. He rose to flee, it says, to disobey the Lord. That's what he was in a hurry to do. It says he's going to go to Tarshish. This city was the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. All right. So I've actually got a map here for you. Check this out. Um, I know it's kind of small, but right here in the center where you see the A, the, the, the nice Google Maps, you know, they had that back then. That's how they knew where to go. So um, the A is Gath Heifer. That's where Jonah is from. And, and instead of going to Nineveh, which is B up there, so he should have been moving east across the land, he actually went southwest down to Joppa by the port there and jumped on a boat to go all the way over to sea. See Tarshish over here? Like, that's like the edge of the known world at this point, right? They didn't know about America and, and North America and South. They didn't know about that. So like this, that was the edge of the known world. He's trying to go as far away from Nineveh as he can possibly go. Are you tracking with me this morning? And it says here that he's fleeing away from the presence of the Lord. What? From the presence of the Lord? I thought Yahweh was like the God of all the universe. You know, like he's not one of these little regional gods like everybody else believed in. Like the Hebrews believed that he was the God of all creation, right? So is Jonah making a theological statement here that God's only a God in this part? And he's, that's not what he's saying. That's not really what he's, you're going to see later in the book, that's not what he believes. When he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord, he's not fleeing from him physically. He's fleeing from the call that God has put on his life. If I can get far enough away from where God told me to go and what God told me to do, then maybe I won't have to do it. Anybody ever ran from what God told you to do? Feeling like physical distance was going to keep you away from the will of God? So Jonah, he took great effort to flee. It says here that he went down to Joppa. So he packed all of his stuff and he travels this long distance down to Joppa to get on a boat to go an even further distance. He paid the fare. He actually spent his own money to run away from God, okay? And then he gets on a ship to, to, to sail away. And, and during this time, sea travel was not super great, all right? Like, it was very risky. There was a lot of unknown dangers. If you were not a professional sailor, like, traveling across the sea was not the thing you really signed up to do, all right? Like, this was, this was a really risky move that Jonah's making, all to get away from obeying the Lord, which has to get us to the question of why. Why would he go to such effort and such risk and, and, and have to pay money, and why would he do all this stuff not to go to Nineveh? Because in his mind, Nineveh was the enemy. They were the, the, the pagan godless conquerors from Syria that had enslaved his people and taken their land. And I don't want anything to do. Like, they don't deserve a warning. I'm not going to go help them. Are you kidding me? Like, they deserve exactly what they're going to get, God. I don't want to help them in any way. Which is, I think I forgot to, give, forgot to give this to you earlier, but that's what our first point is. I resent God's grace when I deny it to my enemies. I start to resent God's grace when I deny it to my enemies. There was once this couple, 
um, who met in college and, um, and got married and, and decided that they were called to be missionaries to Ecuador. Many of you probably heard their story before Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. And so they, they get called into Ecuador, and their goal was to go and find an unreached people group, somebody who had never, a, a tribe that had never heard the gospel before, had probably never even seen a white person before. Like, they were going to, to go and carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. So they go down to Ecuador, and they end up connecting with the Wadoni tribe. And, and while they're there, they, they, they pick this tribe, and they're going to start reaching out. And so a group, it was not, not just the two of them, there was a group of them. And so the men of the group started going and trying to make contact with this tribe. Never, see, never heard the gospel, never seen a white man. They were known to be fairly violent and savage in their ways. So the guys start flying over in, in the plane and, and trying to drop stuff and, and get some good, you know, uh, graces with them. And eventually they land and start making contact. And they had talked with like one or two of them. And, and so they, one day they, were, they flew back in to make contact, hoping to get more uh, interaction with the, with the tribe. And, and they landed, and as they got there, they were quickly ambushed by the tribe, and all five men were killed in cold blood. Died right there on the beach. Many of them, it was a tragedy to say the least, but many of them left wives and kids and family and behind, and it was just, it was shocking. Well, Elizabeth Elliot decided through prayer that she was still called to be in Ecuador. So her and her young daughter stayed there in the country and kept ministering to the people there. And over time, a couple ladies from the Wadoni tribe, the same tribe that had killed her husband, came into the town she was at, and she formed a relationship with these two ladies. And she started loving on them, and she started learning their language. She started discipling them and building a relationship with them. And eventually that relationship led to her being able to go back into share the gospel with the entire tribe and see many of them come to Christ. By all human accounts, that's not the way it should go, right? Like these people should have been her enemies. They killed her husband in cold blood. But she knew the grace that she had received from the Lord and knew that they needed it just as much as she did. So she went, and she continued the ministry that her and her husband started. And it just got me thinking, how often do I, do we, fail to extend grace to much lesser enemies, quote-unquote enemies, in our lives? How about that loud mouth bully at school that's always trying to pick a fight and always trying to give you trouble and you're like, I don't want nothing to do with that dude. Or what about, you know, your spouse's ex that you have to deal with because of family things and you're like, man, they're just the devil. Like, you know, I just don't want, like, right? Like, I'm just, hey, real talk today. You know, we're just being, right? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. What about that lying, manipulative coworker that's always trying to gun for your position and always trying to sneak in with the boss and undercut your stuff? That man who maybe abused your kids or maybe even abused you? How about our political rivals, the ones who believe differently than we do and say things 
on the other side. Or that Muslim family that moved into the neighborhood down the street from you, and you don't really know them, but they kind of scare you. You don't even know why they scare you. How often do we fail to extend grace to people because we put them in a category of enemy? Whether you put that label on it or not, that's really the way we see it. Because here's the, here's the reality, friends. If you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. If I have received God's grace, I am called to be a messenger of God's grace. Every single one of us. It's not just Jonah. It's not just the prophets. If we have received the grace of God in our lives, we are called to be messengers of God's grace to everyone around us. I resent God's grace when I deem others undeserving of the gift I received. I am resenting God's grace when I start to deem others in my life undeserving of the free gift that God has given to me that I was undeserving of too. And when you start to resent God's grace, it does bad things for your heart and for your walk with the Lord. Second thing this morning, not only when I deny it to my enemies, but I also resent God's grace when I disregard it for outsiders. When I disregard it for outsiders. Look at verse 4. Story continues here. So Jonas made it down to Joppa. He's on the ship now, right? He's, he's on his little sailing journey. He says, but the Lord, I love that, right? Remember verse 3 was verse 3? But Jonah, and verse 4 is, but the Lord, right? Like, we're going to see who wins here. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Now, now, now you know mariners are not the Seattle baseball team, right? Like, y'all know that? We're talking about sailors here, like professional sailors were afraid. You see, we can do the but Jonah thing or the but Micah thing or you put your name in the blank. We can have our own plan. We can try to go our own way. But listen, God's got a plan. And it's not going to be thwarted. And it's not going to be sidestepped. And it's not going to be shortchanged. And the longer you re- resist that, the more you're just taking the long road. You can argue, but you're going to lose. You can, you can resist, but he's not going to give in. You can run, but he will come and find you. But the Lord hurled a great wind. This is no ordinary storm. This is a storm from the divine hand of God. It calls it a mighty tempest. It says that the ship was starting to break up into pieces. That the the professional sailors were afraid for their lives. This was a big storm, right? This was a miracle storm. Some of you are like, miracle? Miracle? I thought miracles were like when God did good things for us. No, no, no. Miracles are when God does something supernatural. Sometimes they don't always seem good to us on the front end. They always accomplish his good purposes. But it's a miracle nonetheless. God sends the storm. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah... Here it is again. Had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. (laughs) The irony. 
So the Mariners, they're freaked out, right? They're, these guys are like trying to figure this out. But from what we can tell, they were non-Jews, okay? A lot of times in this, in this day and age, the sailors would come from all over, all these different countries, and they would end up on these ships sailing together. So you'd usually have a, the, like the crew would be this just motley crew of guys from all these different countries and, and stuff. And so they didn't really know each other. But they weren't Jewish, we're going to see here in just a second. Then, So for us, that would be the equivalent of that they were lost. They didn't know Jesus, basically, all right? And so look at their responses here. We see in them two typical human responses to trials. When we don't have Jesus, when we don't know God, there's two ways that we typically respond to trials in life. The first one is religion. It says they cried out to their gods. Not the God, but their gods, the false gods, the ones that they worshiped from their home countries. And and this is what happens when people don't know the true God, is that when trials come, when hard things come, they just start grabbing for anything that seems spiritual that might save them in the moment. And they check the boxes and they go to church or they get baptized or they do the class or they, whatever the religious thing is, they give the money, whatever it is, they, they try to grab to all these religious things where if I can just do X, Y, and Z for God, then God will have mercy on me. And they think that they're earning it. But you can't earn it. This thing about grace, it's a gift. We can't ever do anything to be good enough for God to love us. We can't ever do anything to be good enough to earn our spot in heaven, to earn our spot in church, to earn our spot with Christ. It's all about faith. So first they cried out to their gods, and then the second attempt they did was not religion, it was works. It says they hurled all the cargo into the sea to try to lighten the ship, but they couldn't hurl like God could hurl, right? God hurled the, God hurled the storm, man. They're not going to, I don't care how much cargo you throw over, it ain't going to help. And that's what our works look like before the Lord. I'll just serve at this charity. I'll just give to this over here. I'll just do this, you know, all these nice things for my neighbors or it doesn't matter how much you do in this life. You can't work your way back to Jesus. Your sin has separated you from God. And the only way back, the only way across that chasm is nothing you can throw or do or build. It is faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. So these guys are desperately trying to figure this thing out, but it's just not working for them. But then we find out that Jonah is on board, but he's not praying and he's not throwing anything. No, he is fast asleep, which literally means like deep sleep, like, like Thanksgiving day on the couch with the football game on, turkey coma, sleep. I mean, like the dude is out in the middle of the storm. He could care less what's going on. He's, he's completely disregarding the looming peril for all the men on the ship. He's either oblivious or he's just completely ignoring their need for rescue. Why? Why would a prophet of God be completely ignoring the, the nearing death of all these men on the ship? Because they were outsiders. They weren't Jews. They're not my people. Not my people, not my problem. 
That was his mindset. They're not in. They're not part of God's people, so why should I? It doesn't matter what happens. They're not my problem. They're outsiders. So he's just taking a little nap. I started thinking about things that put us outside or inside of different groups, and I was thinking, kind of think about when, like, when you're a kid, you know, like you're always trying to be like inside the group kind of thing. And, and so I just thought we'd do a little memory lane today for some of us. Some of y'all a little bit younger. This isn't going to connect for you, but the rest of us, it's going to. You guys remember like back, you know, when you were like a kid and teenager, um, certain fads, fashion especially, put you in or out of certain groups. Um, anybody remember the, the, the Z Cavarisi jeans, right? Like if you had these, man, like you, you were they like the ugliest most uncomfortable, like they just not flattering in any way. But if you had a pair, man, like that was the stuff you were in, right? You remember that, right? What, what, what about, what about the, the bum sweatshirts? Everybody remember the bum sweatshirts, right? Like, because that's the identity we all wanted, right? Like just, I'm a bum, like that's who I am, right? Like, but that was like the brand. Like if you had one, man, you were, you were set. And then I came across this. What, what, what about the fanny packs? Come on now, come on. If you had the fanny packs, like, well, see, that's the thing. I don't know if you were ever actually in, if you had the fanny, you were in a group. I don't know what group you were in, but you were in a group. And if you're still using them today, you're in a group. And you might want to stop getting in and out of that group. But, but they put you in a group, right? Like, it was in or out based on, this, this next one, was, this was my jam right here, this next one. The Reebok pumps. Like, I was a baller, man. And, like, man, you pumped those puppies up, man. You could soar. Like, they're just like, you increase your vertical by, by at least a, a foot with the Reebok pumps, or, or the hypercolor shirts. Who had the hypercolor shirts? Come on now, right? Oh, come on, come on. Is that just us? Is that just ours? Okay, now we're getting too young for you guys? Okay, <laughs> whatever. But so like, these, like, they, they, like, when you got hot, they like changed colors, right? Like they like changed colors with the heat. So like you'd get like different colors here, basically, and like here, like it was, it's kind of a weird, gross fad. But, um, but if you had one, man, you were, so for me, here was, the, here was the big one for me when I was, seriously, when I was in school, I remember this one. This is the one I remember the most. When I got into middle school, in our town, I was from a small town, in our town, it was the Adidas coats. I don't know if that was anybody else now, but in our town, it was the Adidas, you had to have the Adidas coat, right? And so in our little town, there was only one store that sold the Adidas coats. It was Glick Sports, and, and they were not cheap, all right? And so, you know, at that point, my, I a single mom, and three kids, and we didn't have a ton of money, and so mom was like, I, I can't afford one. I was like, she's like, if you can pay part, then I'll pay part, and we'll go. So I, I saved my money up, and I was getting my money again. So we go to Glick Sports to get the coat, but it, when we got there, I still couldn't afford, like, the really cool Adidas coats. I got, like, this, like, pullover, like, I didn't get the full zip. I got, like, this pullover version. They had, like, a pocket or something, and it was, like, this, like, puke green color. It was just, like, this, it was, like, the ugliest coat ever, but I had an Adidas coat. And that was going to put me in the group. Are you tracking? Anybody? Is this connected for anybody? And we tend to think about that stuff like it's only for kids. Like that's what kids do, right? But we do it too, don't we? As adults. Like it just, it just gets a lot more expensive <laughs> to be in. Like you got to have the right car or the, the right house in the right neighborhood or like, you know, still the right brands or whatever. Like we all want to be in. We don't want to be out. We want to be in whatever the group is or whatever the thing is. And sometimes we get so focused on being on the inside of whatever it is that we oftentimes will look right past those that are on the outside. Jesus didn't do that, did he? 
Jesus went to the outsiders. The majority of his ministry was not in Judea, in Jerusalem, where all the Jewish elites were. Most of his ministry was out in Galilee, right? And he was connecting with Samaritans and, and you know, healing sick people and, and caring for the poor and talking to tax collectors. And, like, he was going to outsiders to share God's grace. He didn't keep God's grace just for people who looked like him or smelled like him or dressed like him or ran in his whatever the social circles of the day were. He was a mediator. He was a mediator of God's grace to everyone who needed it. So often we get focused on our lives, our families, our church, our social circle, and we miss all the people in our lives that are desperately in need of God's grace because they're just outside of our thing. And we pass them on the streets and we sit next to them at work and we sit next to them at school and, and we just look right past them. We don't even see them. That's not God's plan. That's not God's plan for your life. God's plan for you is if you've received the grace of Jesus Christ to be a mediator of that grace to others, no matter who they are. I resent God's grace when I give selectively what I have received lavishly. I show that I resent God's grace when I start to give it selectively to only certain people and not other people, even though I have received it buckets upon buckets when I was an outsider, when I didn't deserve it. So I resent God's grace when I deny it to my enemies, when I disregard it for outsiders. And then last thing today is this, when I disconnect it from my life. When I disconnect it from my life. Verse six, last verse today, look at this. It says, so the captain, captain of the ship, came and said to him, Jonah, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So the captain finds Jonah like napping down in the bottom of the boat. And he's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, get up. <laughs> like, why are you sleeping? We're all about to die here. What is wrong with you? But then he says something interesting. He says, arise, call out to your God. You know, they had to freak Jonah out, right? Like here he is trying to run from God and there's this pagan captain that comes up and says the exact same words to him that God said. The words of the Lord on the lips of a, a pagan captain arise and call out. Our God is so awesome. <laughs> he can use anything, right? He can use, he can use the storm. He can use some guy who doesn't even know who he is. Like our God can do anything. He can use anything and anyone to accomplish his plan but he wants to use us, right? He want, his preference is to use us, but we have to obey for him to do that. He says, call out to your God, which Jonah's like, what God? <laughs> like the God I'm running from, the God, like, the God that I'm trying to get away from? Like, dude, he's not gonna listen to me. Like, he's not gonna hear my prayers right now. You ever feel that way? You ever have that moment where you're like, I know I'm in deep right now, but I just don't, I think even if I tried to pray, God wouldn't even listen. Like, I'm so far away right now, like, I don't even think it's, it's even worth a shot. 
That's where Jonah's at. But then the captain says, perhaps God will give us a thought and not perish. You see, the captain here, it's amazing. The captain, although he was lost, although he didn't know Christ, although he hadn't put his faith in Yahweh, he understood what Jonah did not. That, man, that God, not man, is in control. God, not man, not me, not you, is in control. Ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what it boils down to. And so many of us wrestle with that. And we struggle with that. And we fight against that because we want to be in control. We want to be able to control of our own lives. We want to do our own thing. We want to have our own say. And he gives us some freedom for sure within certain things. But at the end of the day, when it all comes down to it, God is the one that's in control. He is sovereign overall. And the quicker we understand that, and the quicker we submit to that, the better our life with him will be. When we try to pretend otherwise, things go really bad for us and for everyone else involved. All the other guys on this ship, man, they were just going just another day at work, right? But because of Jonah's sin, because of his disobedience, because of him running from the Lord, now they're all in jeopardy as well. See, our disobedience doesn't just affect us. It affects all of us, all those around us as well. And so I just want to show you something here about Jonah, and then we'll close out. From the moment that Jonah tried to grab the wheel of his life, right? From the moment that he tried to grab control of things, he started this path of disconnecting himself from the fullness of God's grace. And there's a four-step pattern here that I want to point out in Jonah's life that I think could be helpful to some of us as we examine our own lives and our own hearts and say, am I on this path? Am I taking steps down this path of disconnecting myself, distancing myself from God's grace? So disconnection from God's grace starts with number one, disobey God's plan. Guaranteed first step in disconnecting. If I disobey God's plan, if I disobey what he's called me to do, that's the first step away. That's the first step away from God. Jonah rose to flee, it said. So first I disobey God's plan, and then the second thing that happens is I distance myself from God's presence. The second step is distancing from God's presence. He not only rose to flee, he went to flee to Tarshish, as far away as he thought he could get from God's plan for his life. And we do this, don't we? When we take that first step of disobedience, and we sin and we disobey the Lord, pretty soon it starts weighing on our conscience, and then we start distancing ourselves from God by, well, I'm not really going to go to church this Sunday. I got something else I can do, or I'm a little busy, or I'm tired. I'm not going to go to small group this week because, you know, I had a lot going on, and this was happening. I, I don't, I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to talk to that Christian friend. I'm not going to listen to that radio station anymore. I'm going to distance myself from all things related to God because the more I'm connected to things about God, the more I feel the conviction of God for my disobedience. So I disobey God, and then I start to distance myself from God. And then the third thing is I become dull to God's prompting. Dull to God's prompting. God's trying to get Jonah's attention here, isn't he? 
But what's Jonah doing? He's just sleeping. Sleeping, completely oblivious to God's prompting. And that's what happens to us too. As we disobey and as we start to distance ourselves from God and from God's people and from God's word, we become, our spirit becomes dull to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And he's coming and he's knocking and he's knocking and saying, hey, you need to get back on track. You need to come back over here. You're not listening. I, I've got something better for you. Like, but we just, we don't even hear it. We don't even hear it because we're spiritually sleeping. Because we're walking away from the Lord and we're disconnecting from that grace. And then lastly is just disconnected from God's person and power. And it, it shocks me that the, that the captain comes and says, Jonah, call out, man. Call out to your God. And, and, and the Bible, we're going to see in the next chapter, next, or in the next part of the chapter next week, Jonah never does that on the ship. He has the opportunity to pray and he doesn't take it. Because he is so disconnected at this point in the journey, he is so disconnected from God's power in his life, and he's so disconnected from who God is that he can't even take himself to pray. He can't even get humble before the Lord and ask to be restored. That's a scary place to be, guys. But it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like one day you're, you're killing it and things are going great and you, it's you and Jesus are like this, and then the next day you're completely absent. It doesn't, it doesn't happen like that. It's a, it's a progression. It's one step after another step after another step. Disobedience, distance, dull, disconnection. See, disobedience not only disconnects me from God, it disconnects me from his mission for my life. I shared earlier, you know, when I was young, I got saved at a young age, but there was a 10-plus year period in my adolescence and early adulthood that I was completely disconnected from God. I didn't want anything to do with God. I was doing my own thing. I wanted to have my own life. I wanted to do my own plan. I didn't want God, God to tell me what to do or not do. Like I just, I was just, it was just me. I just wanted me. I wanted to be in control. But as I did that, I, I see these steps. I, mean, I, I disobeyed God's plan for my life and then I started distancing myself Stop going to church. I stopped engaging. I, I, even if I went, I'd just play the part. And it was just this fake hypocrite. I wasn't really there. And, and, and over time, I became more and more dull to, this, to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in my life. And things that used to really convict me, oh, I could do that, no problem. Doesn't bother me at all. And I just became further and further and further until finally, God had to take me to a breaking point, to a low point in my life. To say, are you ready yet? Like, it's not working, man. The thing you think you want, the thing you think you're heading for, it's not working. I've got a better plan for you. But you've got to come back. And it took breaking me and getting me on my face, humble and surrendered before him in prayer to get that connection back to grace. And ever since then, man, it's just been a river flowing. I'm not saying I don't have good days and bad days. We all do. But if you're walking in step with the Lord, if you're striving to be in step with the Spirit, man, it just sends a river of grace into your life. All through that, God never left me. His grace was never gone. When you get saved, you have all of God's grace. Man, you have full access to all of God's grace in your life. It wasn't that he left me. It wasn't that he abandoned me. It's that I left 
him. I was the one walking away. I was the one choosing to disconnect. God kept pursuing me every step of the way. And if you're a child of God, if you believe in Jesus Christ, even at your lowest points, God is pursuing you. And he's calling you back to his grace. And if you've stepped into one of these things where you've started to resent God's grace in your life, whether it be through somebody else or through your own disobedience, listen, he wants you back. He's calling you back today through this series. But it takes this, it takes humble prayer. If I've received God's grace, it will never go away. But if I resent God's grace, my connection to it will fade away. If you're saved, you're never going to lose it. But your connection will fade if you are resenting God's grace, either through your own disobedience or through the way that you administer grace to others in your life. So just a little self-assessment this morning. What about you? Where are you at this morning with grace? Are you refusing to extend grace to an enemy in your life? Are you ignoring those around you who are different than you, who are outside of your circles? Are you ignoring the grace that they need in their lives? Are you walking in disobedience before the Lord? Has he called you to do something? Has he told you specifically to do something and you have not yet done it? That will disconnect you from the grace of the Lord. These are all signs that in your heart, in your heart of hearts, in some way you are resenting God's grace in your life. And so today I just want to call you, man, if that's you, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to come back. I know you might feel like you're so far away that you can't talk to God, but you can. He's right there ready to hear. You just have to call out humble, prayerful repentance time to confess. It's time to surrender to the Lord. These areas where we're failing at grace so that we can re-engage with the full experience of God's grace in our lives. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. We're going to sing a song of response this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Thank you, God, for this truth in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is sufficient for every single thing that we encounter, Lord every sin we've committed, every way that we've disobeyed, every person that we struggle to love, every person that we fail to reach out to, Lord, that your grace is sufficient for all of it. Father, I pray that you would renew us with, fill us with a renewed sense of your grace today. Lord, remind us how much we needed it. Lord, remind us how much we were undeserving of it when we found you. Lord, if there's someone here today who hasn't yet trusted in Christ, who still need that first experience with your grace, Lord, I pray that right now that they would feel the, the, the prompting of your Holy Spirit calling them to lay down their sin and to be forgiven and to take up new life with Jesus Christ. Lord, we need grace for all of it. We need grace for salvation. We need grace for sanctification. We need grace for every relationship. Lord, make us mediators. Make us messengers of your grace. 
Thank you, Father, for sending your son. For making all this possible. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing this out.